I just ask a clarify? So this person was asking their partner, how do you de-escalate? And that person yes. was giving advice for how to do that. Yes. And okay. because how they specifically do it in their relationship where she might be mad and then he looks for the reasonable request and um, talks about that. You want to go first, Sesson? I don't know. Something about that felt very staged. I have to say, like, I don't know that I'm like. Welcome to TikTok. <laughs> yeah, like immediately. Welcome to Attached, a podcast about the loved ones we're attached to and the good, the bad, and the ugly advice about those relationships that maybe we shouldn't be so attached to. We here at Attached want to share ways to enhance your relationships and debunk all of that bad relationship advice using science. I'm Dr. Patricia Robertson out of the University of Tennessee. And I'm Dr. Sarah Woods at UT Southwestern Medical Center. And I'm Dr. Sessin Agosh at San Diego State University. Today, Sessin is going to bring us a conversation about Cobra Kai and peer conflict. Then in our academic deep dive segment, we're going to discuss the academic article when we're asked to change the role of suppression and reappraisal in partner change outcomes. Ooh, sounds amazing. And then in good or bad advice, ladies and gentlemen, We'll be back to my beloved TikTok, so stay tuned for that. As always, if you have any advice you'd like us to talk about, please send it to us. You can email us at attachedpodcast at gmail.com, tweet us, Facebook us, Instagram us, all at attachedpodcast, or go to attachedpodcast.com and send us a message. Of course, for bonus content on almost every episode. Um, and to support the podcast, please go to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash attached. Also, wherever you listen to our voices on this podcast, YouTube, Apple, Spotify, whatever it is, please consider kindly to rate and review it. And of course, smash that subscribe button. But before we get to all of this week's episodes loveliness, what's up? Talk to me about you guys. So normal way of saying that sentence. Uh, Woods, how's it going? Pretty good. It is October, which means I am in the middle of uh, working on my child's Halloween costume. <laughs> and it takes a month. It is my one month a year where I mm. attempt crafting and all things maternal in terms of creativity. <laughs> And I really enjoy it. Uh, this year I am doing, thankfully, less sewing, gluing, designing, and more sort of pulling together existing pieces Ooh. that I can sort of just purchase and sort of mostly put together yeah. into a costume. And I'm pretty excited about it. Um, I don't know if y'all have seen the Disney series that it's actually a book, Mysterious okay. Benedict Society, and they came out with the first season last year. It's actually an exceptional show. I totally recommend it. Yes. And my daughter has uh, selected one of the child characters from that show that is hilarious and we love her. So. I love that. I remember you recommended that last year. Yeah. And I tried to watch it in our household and my middle child said, no, 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 too scary. I was like, okay. Oh, I, yeah, it could be. He's maybe a little young for it. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I think we'll try to hit it up in a year or two when he's maybe yeah. like seven or eight rather than five yeah, or six. Yeah. Um, yeah. But the intro looked phenomenal, but we were not yes, allowed to go past excited. that. 
No. <laughs> but I'm excited for your Halloween costume. That yeah. sounds fantastic. Do you do a Halloween costume to match? We have done that in the past. Yeah. I think maybe potentially uh, something we could pull off when my daughter was littler. Uh, <laughs> less so now. Now it feels like maybe I would be forcing the issue. And uh, I have no need for a costume. I don't know where I would go with a costume. So, uh, no, it's just for her. Fantastic. I love it. I look forward to seeing pictures of it. Uh, Sass, what's going on in your world? What's new? What's hip? What's happening? Not much hip. Um, okay, the happening <laughs> I can cover. Uh, so, it, it, you know, consistent with what Sarah's talking about, Halloween is something I've grown to become more excited about, you know, with a child mm. and a child who starts to have ideas about like what he's interested in um, and giving me the opportunity to try my hand at helping create um, something as opposed to just going and buying, which is great too, but just, you know, that one time a year where I can go to Joanne Fabrics and actually not feel guilty for like buying things um, that right. I don't need. <laughs> uh, or so, don't know what to do with. Uh, yeah, there's like. a lot of that too. <laughs> just a, a lot of Joanne stuff just, just hanging around. Um, but I, you know, have tried to really shape his interest in what he wears for the last few years. and have How's been that going? Very badly. I, I <laughs> In the sense that you know, I had a window of time where he didn't have a choice, he didn't have words, and I couldn't right. capitalize then, but I just didn't well, he realize. He really cute. Yeah, I mean, and he could pull off anything, but like, he has a certain sort of look about him where I think he gets sort of compared to certain characters or uh, one person he's often compared to is Bruno Mars. And so I had big dreams okay. of turning him into Bruno Mars a couple times. And for then Halloween. For Halloween and Prince. Also, because he has like oh, a really cute. cool sort of hairstyle. And so I've been trying to push him towards Prince and taking him to Joanne's and being like, look what we could create. And Joanne's. he's more like. Joanne's is definitely where your son is going to feel inspired, by the way. <laughs> Beloved child characters, Bruno Mars and Prince. It's more the velvet aisle. I'm like, look, look, look what the we could do. The velvet aisle. I'm like, look what we could do here. You could feel soft <laughs> and beautiful on, you know, Halloween. Wow. He's like, I don't know who Prince is. I don't know who sure. Mars is so no. you know we've been trying to inspire him through the music and so far it's not leading to anything so I think ultimately he's going to be a fireman costume from Costco it. so yeah, yeah. one of these days well, he maybe. could be a velvet fireman I mean you could still introduce go down some velvet admittingly costume. I did try Prince one year and about half hour before we walked out the door I had to turn it into a magician's costume instead just, oh, God, there was it. like a mustache gone wrong, turned into me. Oh. It found like a stick for it to be like a. <laughs> I'm very good at switching things up last minute. So, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. it, adaptability is key. I don't think we'll have to do that this year. The fireman costume is pretty solid. So, listen, I'm here for firemans and women, fire people. Fire people. Um, people who fight fire. I'm with it. People who fight fire. <laughs> It's, it's, it's the politically correct? No, I don't even know if anybody uses that term. So. They sure don't. They sure don't. They sure don't. Belongs in the velvet aisle is where that term belongs. <laughs> Let's take a trip down the velvet aisle. I've relinquished the idea of making uh, Halloween costumes long, long ago. I do like make stuff, but Halloween costumes, there's too much of a pressure time in that w month to make something successful. Um, I applaud both of you guys for your attempts. Um, we uh, buy stuff uh, we have. My 
experience growing up was that I was never allowed to buy Halloween costumes. My mom grew up in Miami and growing up in North Georgia, it was so cold there, you know, like she was always so afraid we'd get cold on Halloween trick-or-treating. So whatever um, costume we had, it had to be made out of sweatpants growing up. So my motherhood pendulum has swung so far the other direction. It is, you can buy anything you want. We'll buy a costume, <laughs> whatever you're into. If you want me to make it, I'll do that. You just let me know what you want, kid, and we'll do it. So my oldest, probably like two weeks after Halloween, will make a decision of what she wants to be for next Halloween, and it will stay consistent. This child wow. and consistency beyond any adult human I know. Um, the some may call it rigidity, but I love no, the consistency. Persistence, <laughs> persistence. Yeah. We'll reframe it. Um, my middle child, you know, he's six now. Hope I got that right. Yeah, yeah, he's six, and he bounces back between dragon, dinosaur the next year, dragon, dinosaur the next year. This year, for the first time, he wants to be something different. He's Ooh. a character. Actually, I take that back. It is still a dinosaur. <laughs> dragon character but from minecraft oh it's sure. called something specific i don't remember Love and it. then the baby that has no choice at all um the baby will uh be in this cute strawberry outfit um mm -hmm. that was worn by previous children children nice it's gonna be so adorable it is the cutest strawberry little outfit so he will be a strawberry so i'll have a Ravenclaw Hogwarts, not a character. She just specifically wanted Ravenclaw Love it. wizard costume, a Minecraft dragon and a rainbow. Mm. We'll be walking. I don't know where we're going to go trick-or-treating. We live in the middle of nowhere, but we'll figure it out. <laughs> Someone it. will give you candy. Somewhere. We'll just wander around our driveway. <laughs> um, and I'll just throw candy at him. Get it, kids. It's just a it. usual Saturday. Is that what you're describing? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Isn't that yours? What? First up, pop and culture. We learn about relationships from our friends and family, but a lot of what we think about love and relationships come from what we see in pop culture. For this first segment, we like to take a moment to highlight events in pop culture that influence people's lives and how we view relationships. Sesson, can't wait to hear about it. What you got for us? I am excited today to talk about a show that, admittingly, I was probably once a little embarrassed to admit that I'd watch, but I'm embracing it now. Um, some of you may have heard of Cobra Kai. It's wildly popular. Don't be embarrassed. I've heard people love it. Well, now that people are acknowledging it openly, I feel like I can too. <laughs> Before I have to admit, I just sort of silently watched it in bed. And <laughs> didn't tell my husband I even watched it for a while. But I was like, I think you may have caught me watching it. I don't know how it came out, but I'm there now. I'm, I'm now acknowledging it on. <laughs> You're treating Cobra Kai like it's porn or something like that. You know, I love the original Karate Kid, so there's no yeah. shame in that for sure. Um, especially with, you know, um, the first movie. But something about watching a show I thought was really just focused on teenagers that sort of made me go, yeah, like, oh, is this my saying. age? But it's evolved and turned into more than that. So I'll speak to a little bit about that actually here um, for Excited, today. Yeah. yeah, so 
It's immensely popular. It's on Netflix. It's um, currently season five was released. So it's been on for a little while. Um, it's a story um, that takes place 35 years after the original Karate Kid uh, films. Um, and now Are the original cast members still in it at all? One of my favorite parts of the show is that every season or sometimes a couple times in the season, characters from the past will emerge. Oh, I love that. And that so um, even they do, you know, um, playbacks of uh, Mr. Miyagi in the show, even though he passed, um, I think, a decade ago. I'm not exactly oh, wow. sure. But it definitely does play, um, you know, um, back to the original. And a lot of the storylines are still like things they bring up in the show pretty regularly, especially some of the feuds, right, from the past. And so... Um, you know, the stories before were about uh, Daniel LaRusso, right? The Karate Kid. Um, but now it's sort of shifted a little bit. He's still a, a main character, but the focus is more on Johnny Lawrence, who is in the original Karate Kid movie. Um, and both the men are in their 50s, um, have children. Uh, it starts out with um, Johnny's character really struggling to find his way and getting really stuck, you know, in time in terms of what happened and never really coming through that experience. Mm. And he's fighting his way out of this, like, miserable sort of existence that he has, doesn't have a relationship with the son, you know, just really doesn't have focus or direction. And then, um, you know, really quickly he meets this kid and is inspired to support him and help him because this kid's being bullied. And... Um, you know, brings back uh, his karate skills and opens a dojo um, with the purpose of trying to become a teacher and a role model for kids who need to um, defend themselves. Um, but his mm. strategy on it, especially in the early stages, is not so much self-defense as it is like offense. Um, and, um, you know, Cobra Kai in the show represents uh, like this active, aggressive sort of part of our existence about um, you know, striking hard, striking early. Um, but you see sort of the motto or sort of the focus of that change a bit, um, especially as one of the other characters, um, you know, the Karate Kid character really introduces Miyagi-Do, which is more balanced and centered on a philosophy of self-defense and like balance. Anyhow, um, you know, I'm bringing it up today, not because I want to focus on the fighting that happens in the show, which is quite a bit. And admittingly, like, makes me a bit uncomfortable to see young people fighting in very public spaces, including schools and swimming pool. Okay. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the part of the show that I think brings tension and conflict in terms of reviews. And I think the messaging that it promotes um, around like violence, right? But there's also a lot of lessons in the show, a lot that talks about like what it means to find purpose as a young person and focus and have something specific to sort of focus your energy on that builds like a community for you. Um, it's about mentorship as well. Um, and especially as the Miyagi-Do aspect of it gets more and more important, like there's a balance between um, perspectives that I think I could appreciate. Um, that being said, you know, the focus of the show is really on, um, you know, besides the fighting, it's also on self-defense and parenting and bullying, right? And interestingly enough, a lot of the characters progress, go from being bullied to becoming bullies as they learn oh. these new techniques and fights because they don't know how to sort of 
I think, hone in and manage sort of the new lessons that they're getting. But eventually, without ruining it, they all come back, right, to a place of more balance and utilizing their new skill sets in a way that's more harmonious and in response to more of like a self-defense as opposed to like being the one to sort of like aggress. Mm. Um, That being said, too, you know, I think for me as a parent, as someone who you know, studies relationships, I became really curious watching this show, thinking about like what it must be like raising young people, particularly teenagers, but also we know that bullying happens early. It doesn't happen, you know, um, in high school only or middle school. It happens, you know, as early as elementary, even in kindergarten, you know, you hear stories. And just what it is we do to really prepare children to address conflict because this whole show is about like how do you address conflict when you're engaged in these peer relationships and of course it exaggerates because it's entertainment and focuses on sort of the physical aspect of it but i'm really curious you know given how popular it is you have a lot of people who are raising children now right watching the show including myself what are the messages we're promoting around like how are we training our kids to be ready to manage conflict when it presents itself because none of us you know, are immune from it or can be protected from some level of conflict in our lives within, you know, our peer relationships at school and sporting, you know, events, whatever it might be, we're exposed to it. And I don't know that we have just a lot of conversation around how do we talk to young people about how they engage people um, when there is tension and conflict, you know, at an early age. You know, we hear the word bullying a lot and, you know, we know that they're bullying programs, interventions out there. But at a basic level, when we're seeing our children struggle to manage a situation on the playground or at school, like, what are we saying as parents to help them? And so um, what I wanted to talk about too today was just some of the statistics that are out there. Um, You know, like when you don't teach these strategies early on, I think, you know, it really may set your child up to be at higher risk for experiences of bullying. And the statistics on bullying are really scary when we're not teaching our kids really um, thoughtful strategies, defense strategies, verbal defense strategies for how to manage conflict. I think it opens them up potentially to be more at risk for more um, larger and more consistent experiences of bullying, um, perhaps. Um, so one out of every five kids um, reports being bullied. These are some national statistics that I was looking at and found. Um, what, this statistic came from the National Center for Educational Stats um, a few years ago. Students who experience bullying are at higher risk for depression, anxiety, sleeping difficulties, lower academic achievement, dropping out of school, mm. and not to mention higher rates of suicide ideation. Um, mm-hmm. And the numbers get really scary when you look at people who are from minoritized communities, especially right. when you look at um the LGBTQ community um, and looking at one statistic that showed that more than 70% of folks who identify as LGBTQ um, are verbally abused um, or physically abused. Um, And it's really something that I think is at the forefront of conversations. We see more and more schools taking some approach to it. But again, early intervention as parents and thinking about how do we really try to mitigate, reduce the chances of our child going into that kind of environment, I think is important for us to be dialoguing about as well. So, you know, what are some of the verbal defense strategies? How do we advocate for our kids early on when we notice that there's some conflict going on? Um, You know, so 
just wanted to turn it to you all and see if you had any ideas for like how you're thinking about this being parents and like what are the conversations you've had with your kids about mm -hmm. how to manage this? Yeah, absolutely. It's super challenging, especially from the research and the education that we've had. We learn all about it. We know the statistics. We know that bullies tend to also be bullied or maybe are bullied even at home by their parents. Um, also, you know, some young child's anxiety, high levels of anxiety can also turn into bullying because it gives them a sense of control. At least they have control over something, right? So you know all of that. Well, you know, we do uh, so much, too much sometimes, uh, you know, knowledge in our head, but then it turns into your children becoming parents and raising them and seeing it um, in person to your own children can be really, really challenging. Um, you know, my oldest experienced one of her really good friends just being super mean and bullying her, um, not this summer, but last summer, just over and over and over again. And she would come home crying and, you know, we had to have, I, as a parent had to set boundaries that we, we can't be over at their house anymore and we can visit them and hang out with them as a group but um you don't have to expose yourself to this you know you may have been friends with her for years and years but that doesn't mean that you have to put up with this behavior you don't deserve to be treated like that so we had to have that conversation and i had to step in as a parent um and tell her mom what happened and that it's unacceptable and she was a good friend of mine and i've had to slowly step back the amount of time it wasn't that slow um the amount of time we spend with them because it just was not good for my child's well-being and mental health and we just we see them occasionally now but not nearly as much as we did so you have to change and redirect and it also was a friend that i don't see as much anymore now mm -hmm. because of that and, and there was not any ill will it was just like a conversation that you know what we can still love them but maybe we love them from a distance. We don't have to expose ourselves to that um, mm -hmm. as much anymore. And also I will say, I think, Sarah, you might remember the exact episode and we'll put it in the notes, but we did a good or bad advice about bullying. Maybe it was last um, season as well that mm -hmm. we can link in the notes as well. What mm -hmm. are you thinking, Sarah? Yeah, I mean, I have had similar conversations at times with Charlotte about um, especially sort of bigger picture, what makes for a good friend and how do we want to treat other people? How do we want to be treated? And uh, also, how can we understand that someone can be a person we consider a friend and then their behavior not be okay? And similar to, I think, what you're saying, Patricia, then how do we say no to the behavior uh, whether or not the friend is going to have a reaction that could be uncomfortable for us, that we need to know when to say no, that that's not okay, that when someone hurts our feelings, that we can communicate that, that that may be important for a friend to hear. If they're somebody that's a good friend, that they would wanna know that, they won't want to do those things. Mm -hmm. um, also how to ask for help when you need it from adults that are nearby which is always as a parent feels a little bit sort of like a risky thing to over teach because you also, uh, I think there are, you know, a lot of social norms and a lot of peer pressure around um, engaging adult help. As right, tattletales and such. Yeah. yeah. Um, but also having a few times to have had to engage the school 
to say, oh, that behavior you're describing is absolutely not okay. And yeah. you're not old enough, uh, do not have the experiences you need to know that that was something maybe you should have said or could have said no to. You just knew it made you feel uncomfortable and you didn't have power in the moment to say that that wasn't okay. Then I go to the school. Because I, it's the school's responsibility right. also when it happens Absolutely. in that environment to engage the kids in talking about uh, how those behaviors are not acceptable and how we can lean towards kindness instead of right. being aggressive or exclusionary. And I think what you're talking about and what I'm talking about only was made possible because of open communication. So yeah, ongoing right, right. open communication, With your um, whether yeah. it's good or bad, just continuing to nurture that as parents, which can be really hard sometimes. Sometimes you don't have the time. Sometimes my own reactivity can shut down conversations. So being mindful about how to, even if it's stuff you don't necessarily like to hear or want to hear, making sure you have those open line of communication with your children so that they can feel comfortable talking to you, whether it is venting and you being a source for them coping with that emotion or also you being a source of helping them fix and remedy that as well, I think is really something that we can all do as parents. Yeah, I think this conversation could go on a while because I think there's so many sides to it to also consider and, and look at. I think the one piece that's part of the show too that I can appreciate that it's highlighting it is like sort of the path and the challenges that the person doing the bullying experiences like you know it's we often comment especially when it's our kids who are being bullied right on just sort of the outcome like this is what happened ultimately that's not acceptable and i'm not okay with it but like what are some of the emotional mental health things that are sometimes tied to you know why someone does bullying right and looking as a parent when your child is the one doing that bullying how to step in how to support them how to potentially help them manage it directly with that person as opposed to necessarily just sort of being the one like you said before to intervene and so I think um warrants you know more dynamic conversations too perhaps in the future about this but there's a lot of you know we know that people who are hurt tend to do a lot of hurting towards others yeah, and yeah. like that's something that I think as a society we have to figure out like how do we change that culture because a lot of kids are going to school going into the playground you know they're going into these spaces reactive to what's happening in their environment and not just engaging. They're bullies and victims. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. It's this vicious perpetual cycle that I think um, we could all be doing a better job at trying to manage and break. So, um, but yeah, Cobra Kai, I'm telling you, it's real. It's where it's, uh, it's where it's at. Even if you're not an original Karate Kid fan, I think you could find pleasure in watching this. So, um, very well rated. So it doesn't need the audience, but if you're interested. Oh, it's- it doesn't need you, but if it doesn't you need you, it, jump on. <laughs> I love it. Now we're going to move to our academic deep dive segment and discuss a new article titled When We're Asked to Change the Role of Suppression and Reappraisal in Partner Change Outcomes by Dr. Natalie Sasson at the University of Toronto, Mississauga and her team and recently published in the Journal of Social and Personal Relationships. On earlier episodes of Attached, we've talked several times about 
couple conflict and research that suggests that what couples argue about are often the same issues over and over and over. What is most important is how couples argue and how they communicate about these issues when they come up. The research we're discussing today focuses on one way couples often try to resolve conflict by asking each other to change behavior and characteristics that are less than satisfying. It is not easy to have a partner ask you to change. I could not tell you what that feels like. I've never (laughs) been asked that before. Indeed, these authors point out Having a partner ask us to change can bring up some pretty intense negative emotions. We may feel inadequate, angry, embarrassed, and these feelings don't necessarily lend themselves to feeling motivated to then make that change that was requested, which if we don't, we're sort of right back where we started and round and round couples go again getting stuck in very unresolved conflicts that can very easily spiral up. But what if when we're asked to change, we manage our negative feelings um, about that request? So we manage that reactivity. Um, What would that look like? And does it actually help? Gosh almighty, I certainly hope so. So now we're going to make a change. We're going to shift from me to you. Um, And I'm going to ask you, Sarah, to please tell us some more about this study, what they found, and how, I mean, obviously, we can fix everybody's marriage. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, that's where I'm headed. That's the takeaway. This is the (laughs) ultimate piece of information y'all need. Uh, They focus specifically on that emotion regulation piece that you're describing, Patricia, across two studies in this paper. Um, And they looked at two different kinds of ways that people commonly regulate their emotional reactions. Mm. Uh, The first one was emotion suppression. So this is when we are feeling an emotion, but we try to hide that from other people. We um, are having an inner experience, but we're trying not to let that be an outer visible experience. Um, And that suppressing of emotions is actually linked to a bunch of negative outcomes, depression, investing less effort in goals I set for myself, uh, worse relationship quality. Mm -hmm. It is in general, according to these authors, considered maladaptive, especially because it can also backfire, right? So as we are working very hard to retain our emotion and not share that with other people, it can actually amplify. It can make the negative emotion we're feeling and trying to manage much larger in the process. So these authors suggested that the suppressing of negative emotions we may do when somebody asks us to change may be less successful uh, at then making the change, it might be associated with being less likely to meet our partner's ideal. They Mm. use the term ideal to sort of uh, reference how successful we are at at getting closer to the change that the partner is requesting. Um, The second emotion regulation strategy they looked at is cognitive reappraisal. So this is what we do when we feel an emotional reaction in a situation and we sort of shift our thinking, we reframe our thinking to reinterpret that situation in a way that might shift its emotional meaning or how it's impacting us. So if we are being asked to change, we can maybe reframe that request as a signal that maybe our partner is really committed to or invested Mm. in the relationship or really cares about me. 
And in general, as an emotion regulation strategy, this is a process that can be associated with more positive and less negative emotion, less relationship regression, more satisfying relationships. In general, the authors were considering this to be beneficial potentially and that it might help us to manage that emotional impact of being asked to change and therefore uh, allow us to feel more motivated to make the change Mm -hmm. and um, get closer to that outcome that potentially our partner is asking for. So they did this in two different ways. And the first way was a lab interaction study. So they had 111 couples who are in a relationship for over a year come in to have a recorded change conversation in their research lab. And this is two six-minute conversation. So really brief that they're just prompting people to say, please tell your partner about something you would like them to change, work on, or improve. They're given a minute to think about it. And then they speak for a minute while their partner listens. The partner's then given a minute to respond. They're each given one additional minute to speak, and then they both freely speak for two minutes. And Just they, pandemonium um, for the two minutes. Just for two minutes, just wild all out back and forth. <laughs> uh, but it's only six minutes. And I spell out sort of what this lab discussion looks like, because how often do couples talk like this? I am going to request a change of you. I will speak for one minute and I will retain the floor. Then you shall speak for one minute. Then I yeah. shall have the chance to rebuttal and vice versa. And then two minutes and done, right? That is not how couples um, sort of engage, uh, honestly, a Unless lot of times both in very highly trained lawyers just extremely they're both couples therapists and highly well regulated uh so i think sort of potentially t- an inadvertent takeaway is in some ways this could be an effective way to communicate especially when it's hard topics that you're talking about is to very intentionally take right. turns and make sure you both have a voice and be time limited about it right so things that the couples asked for were um if their partner can make a change in how they communicate, uh, how sensitive they are, their exercise practices, their phone use. Um, and then the partners were asked, um, both of my podcast co-hosts have both cringed visibly. <laughs> you all cannot see that, but I, they cringed exactly where I knew that they would. Um, the Yeah, I, I can't imagine my partner being like, listen, we need to talk about your exercise use. And we're like, listen, we need to talk about your face. That would be my emotional response. That's right. right. I'm sure you'd wait that whole minute for them to finish talking about the exercise before you I definitely murmur that. under my breath and talking about your face. Talk about your face. And then you'd let the next 59 seconds of silence play out while you just made deep eye contact. <laughs> um, but they were asked right after uh, their motivation. What was their motivation to change? So to what extent will you put mm. in the effort to make this change for your partner? And the extent that they engaged in either emotional suppression or reappraisal when they heard the request. So... When I was feeling negative emotions, I made sure not to express them to my partner. When I wanted Mm. to change my emotional experience, I changed the way I thought about the situation. Mm. And then two weeks later, they completed a survey that rated how much progress they were making. And what they found was an emotional reappraisal, but not suppression. Just the reappraisal piece was marginally associated with greater motivation to change in the lab right after. If I can shift gears about how I'm thinking about that request for change, I might feel a little bit more inclined to work towards that. Mm. Maybe not for all of us. Um, And then also two weeks later, they reported 
more progress in that change. Their partner did not, uh, which is interesting. Um, and then they did a second study where they looked at weekly surveys. 151 couples uh, did an eight-week diary um, process. Mm. So at the beginning, they listed three aspects of their partner that they would like their partner to change, as well as three aspects of themselves that they would like to change. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that the researchers could select a change that the partner only wanted it wasn't a mutual goal and that their partner highly desired um things like patience organization spending habits chores um and then each weekend for eight weeks they reminded both partners of the change that their partner requested and asked them to report how much they were engaging in these emotion Mm. regulation strategies while thinking about this change and what they found was that greater emotional suppression, trying to hide those emotions. If within me, within each of my reports each week, on weeks where I may report more emotional suppression, I might have felt like I was closer to my partner's ideal. But across all of their participants, people in general, on average, that were more likely to be suppressing their emotions reported feeling like they were further away from their partner's ideal. And so did their partner. But reappraisal? It was a go. So they found that they reported that they felt like they made more progress in their change. And so did their partners. Their partners were also thinking, look, they're working so hard. Look at them. And they felt like they were getting closer to their partner's ideal. Was not associated with gender. Was not associated with relationship length, which I think are um, important caveats. Mm -hmm. I do think based on sort of your reactions about what the authors shared that these change requests included. It was a caveat I put here for myself too. Like they didn't rate the requests of changes, at least as far as I could tell from this paper. Um, Some could be considered quite personal, very large. Uh, I don't know if they were sort of, um, they weren't asked to engage in like conversations about what steps it might take. They weren't coached in how to have the conversation, which is a totally different paper to be clear. I'm not saying that's a limitation of this paper, just that... There is a lot of variation in being asked to think about maybe how often you use your phone or how you communicate. Or how much money you spend. I mean, and your, I mean, exercise was absolutely where I went. Oh, oh, yikes. Uh, But also, these are not necessarily dyadic requests, right? Mm. So we're framing this. Uh, research importantly about how couples get into conflict around you know a lot of times it's uh, issues around trust and intimacy and we're talking about things like chores but really it's about how equal our partnership is right Um, investment and how much time we spend together being about how much you make me feel cared for or loved for Um, it's unclear how much these change requests were dyadic um, is it possible somebody asked about, like, I wish you'd exercise more because I enjoy exercise and I'd like to yeah. have sort of this exercise hobby. Together. Man, I would just, if we could marathon together, it would just be the best because I love spending time. Right. Um, I just wonder how much it shifts motivation and also oh, how often they're asking for these changes. If this is like I signed up for this study and now I have to think about something that I want you to change that we've never talked about. So it's the first time you're hearing I'm saying Man, you watch way too much TV. <laughs> like I That Cobra Kai watching that you're doing secretly in the bedroom is far too much. Wow, you're super into Karate Kid and I never knew about you that, <laughs> uh, before we got together. Uh, I sort of wonder about how often they've asked for this change. If we're talking about how we communicate or how sensitive you are, 
I imagine probably we've talked about that before. Um, yeah. It might shift how I manage my emotions, the emotions I experience in general, and then how motivated I might feel or how able I might feel to make the change. But in general, I do think it is uh, helpful, or rather I do think there's a, a helpful takeaway that when our partner, when we're engaging in back and forth conversations and our partner is suggesting, you know, it might be really helpful if we could shift in this way or I'd really like it if you X, Y, Z, sort of reframing what that means and thinking about that as maybe an opportunity for growth or really mm-hmm. about how much my partner cares or is committed. Um, this research is suggesting that's probably more helpful than just hiding our feelings outright. Yeah, I'm from a theory of change perspective. I mean, it makes sense, right? Like pushing yeah. down your emotions. It doesn't work. Um, that isn't going to cr- necessarily create change because you yourself aren't necessarily changing, right? But if you try to think differently, that cognitive reappraisal, that makes sense that maybe your behaviors would then follow. Mm-hmm. More, more, more yeah. likely to follow. Yeah. Sasson, you are, in the words of someone we know, thinking very loudly. Oh, am I? <laughs> I I mean, it's just, uh, I guess I'm going back to a lot of the research we, I guess we all do on couples and just how, you know, this idea of reappraisal, like it's powerful, right? When you can achieve it, it really does yeah. have the ability to really soften uh, us towards our partners, create a lot of patience, a lot of understanding, a lot of empathy. I mean, all the things that... Mm-hmm are conducive to like giving space and to people changing over time in a way that's, you know, often like more doable. Um, I think it's really hard though. It's really difficult to do that. As I was listening to us, I thinking like just how difficult it is for people to engage in that. I get it for the exercise. They were given very specific instructions probably on how to do it and like, which, but in reality, like when we talk about that with couples, especially in the context of therapy, right? It's like, much more difficult to slow down sort of our response system, which is to immediately criticize, judge, and like, you know, Mm -hmm. sort of do that negative sentiment override where we assume sort of the worst or that our partners are doing things to be hurtful or not caring of us. I completely agree. And I wonder if these couples, for the most part, seemingly are not like clinical level of distress couples, right? I wonder if it is an easier process for couples who have... That positive sentiment override, they're generally high satisfaction in their relationships. They generally have decent communication. Um, They haven't had many emotional injuries towards each other in their relationships. So in that circumstance, I think being able in the emotional safety of those relationships, it is easier to have those cognitive reappraisals, right? Um, But in the couples that you're talking about where there's years and years of um, emotional hurt in the couples that are in therapy, I think it would be a lot harder. But I'm wondering if for some couples, maybe the ones in this study, it's not easy, but maybe easier. These are definitely community-based samples. These are community-based couples that they mostly sampled from outside the university setting that this author's in. Um, I would say probably across this many couples, you do have some couples who we might otherwise describe as probably benefiting from couples therapy. But I think that variation you're describing in terms of what's the larger emotional safety of these relationships. I mean, they were together at least a year, cohabiting on average about 27 years old across both these studies. So they may have been in relationships, some of them for 
four years, I think was maybe the average. So that's enough time for some of these couples to have done these stances back and forth about what they maybe have had, maybe what they're wanting to change many, many times. So I agree the variation in, if this is something that's particularly challenging for you when you're sort of listening to this description, it is absolutely something that couples therapy would be helpful for. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's one of those things to do that. You have to really, it takes time. I think, especially yeah. when you've had, yeah, um, inju- yeah you've got to go slow and you've had a lot of uh, injuries either within the relationship or outside of it, right? With our attachment history, yeah. that can really affect our ability to reappraise because it's like, can I trust people, right? Like that's where you're starting from as opposed to just within the relationship. So, um, Absolutely. yeah, it's a really amazing, I think, skill to have. And incredibly powerful, I think, to implement within relationships. I think it can help a relationship go the long way if you know how to do that, um, you know, in a relationship and do it consistently. So, yeah, and give yourself that patience and grace if you're going to start trying to do this work of cognitive reappraisal and these dyadic communications. If you don't get it right the first, second, third, tenth time, just keep at it. Like, give yourself that grace. And like Sarah was saying, you know, if, if you find yourself not as a couple or a family or a dyad, whatever that looks like, um, trying, trying, trying and not being able to get it right, I think a, a third party professional, you know, a therapist would really, really help in that regard. Woohoo! Boo! Woohoo! Yeah! Finally, time for good or bad advice, where we talk about pervasive relationship advice in our culture. We hear relationship advice from our parents, families, and friends. We see advice about how to be in these relationships from movies and TV shows. And we read endless advice spewed at us on all the social media, blogs, and numerous top 10 lists. But this is going to be a surprise to you guys. A lot of it just isn't actually good for our relationships. This is the part of the show where we use science, mind you, to decide if the advice is good or bad. If you have seen or heard any advice that you'd like us to talk about it, please send it to us. Email us at attachedpodcast at gmail.com or get at us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, all at attachedpodcast, or go to attachedpodcast.com and send us a message. While you're at it, of course, please rate, review, and subscribe um, to the podcast on whatever podcast platform you love and adore, you're emotionally tied to. That's yours. Do it. We love it. Also, as you hopefully know, we always have a bonus content of good or bad advice for our Patreon subscribers. So please consider um, becoming a member of Patreon and supporting us. So today, like I alluded to in the intro, we are going back to our, I say collectively, love of TikTok. So are you guys ready? We have a, a several uh, TikToks lined up here. Um, and if you want the full video experience of this, please pop over to YouTube and you can see it there. So first up. Well, here's the thing. We do bare minimum days in this house. Sometimes your mental health isn't up to it. Sometimes your physical health isn't up to it. Right now I'm recovering from a vasectomy, so I've been sitting down doing nothing for two days, and my wife has been doing everything because she's amazing. That is the very definition of me doing the bare minimum for two days, and her doing everything. Going above and beyond. Um, sometimes we need to be okay with our partners having bare minimum days. Picking up the slack for each other. Because marriage isn't just about the good parts. It's also about struggling together. 
Have a better day. So for a little bit of context, this creator was responding to a comment. Um, the guy was talking about his vasectomy and saying, congratulations on doing the bare effing minimum. And that was his response to that comment. Um, what do we think about this? Um, sometimes it's okay to have a bare minimum day. They have bare minimum days in this household. And, um, you know, knowing that partners back and forth, some can have bare minimum days and not. Good or bad advice? What are your thoughts, Woods? I've never heard it called that. I mean, I think part of what he's describing is probably very normal. If you think about like just even sort of how often people get sick and are not able to help around the house or help with co-parenting or I guess I don't know why I don't love what we're calling it. It seems like a category of like we have a certain number, mm. like I get 10 bare minimum tabs to pull a year. <laughs> and um, I honestly, it, it, I feel like I probably would take more than that. Uh, but I think yeah. it's probably, um, uh, I think the more important question would be whether there's sort of a quality big picture. Okay. If you have one person who's bare minimum day-ing it all the time and another partner who's always picking up all the slack and I doing agree. everything, that is a huge recipe for a relationship disaster. So I think bigger picture, it's about equality across the board than it is about on any one particular day where, I mean, caregivers do what he's describing all the time, but there are lots of other ways that people who cannot do their typical role can still contribute to the family. So good advice about bare minimum days that we don't necessarily love the words. And also yeah, maybe um, it's okay to that this is just a normal part rather than just like a, a highlight. Oh, we have a bare minimum day. Yeah. Uh, Sasson, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I agree with what um, Sarah's describing here. I mean, I bare minimum sort of sounds like a, we're talking about like, some performance right like you're doing in your relationship and i don't know i feel like um it's hard to talk I, when i'm thinking about like bare minimum i'm really thinking about like you know days where you just need um a little break like you need a little respite you need a yeah. little bit of like recharging you need a little bit of downtime i mean bare minimum so it's like a negative sort of twist or connotation to that when i'm like it's just called taking care of yourself. It's called just taking some time off. It's called replenishing. It's self-care, yeah. right, for another word. So I don't know um, about the language, but I think the idea that he was getting behind makes sense. Of course, there are days where you're going to perform, right, or engage in your responsibilities within the household, within the relationship at a different rate, in a different way, and that's okay. You don't always have to maintain at the same level. That's just, We're not you know, we're human beings, right? I don't like to think right. about us in that way where it's about performance and achieving a certain level of a certain something every time, every day. Um, it feels like a lot to live up to every day. But I do want to say too, there's a lot of opportunity to build, you know, some really positive um, engagement and memories when we're having a day where we're doing less than we typically would right we're doing that self-care and for our partner to step up and either take care of things or take care of us in that effort and it can be like an opportunity for building connection and warmth and care and like i think those days are important to actually have so you can see how the other person shows up and you know in the relationship right. and just it's an opportunity to see 
um, ourselves just be nurtured. And I like that. I think there needs to be more of that sometimes in relationships. Yeah. So I like that as an opportunity to be nurtured and being able to accept that nurturing, I think can be sometimes hard in the relationship. And I know you guys uh, know this, but I don't think the creator meant it in a negative way. I think he meant it more as like a tongue in cheek type of way. But in general, it sounds like we agree, good or bad advice, give yourself that grace and patience that it is fully okay to not be 100% on every single day because that is what a robot does and we are not robots. All right, you guys ready for the next one? My friend sent me this after my son died. When life gives you lemons, eat them whole. Seriously, just choke them all down, skin, pulp, seeds and all, and don't break eye contact. Maybe life will stop being such an asshole if you show it that you're done fucking around. It's quite possibly my favorite thing that I own. I love it so much. So if you know anyone who's tired of life shit, might I suggest getting them one of these? For the reference, it's like a, a book picture um, thing. We've mentioned that phrase before here on the podcast, when life gives you lemons, make lemonade. And I had never seen this twist on it before. And I'm curious what you guys think, Woods. I certainly uh, appreciate that she feels like it's particularly powerful. Yeah. And I think that is most valuable. Probably part of that advice is that her friends knew her well enough to mm -hmm. know how to nail uh, a gift that would make her uh, really appreciate it and feel validated and seen and feel like um, another opportunity to maybe sort of stand her ground and reclaim some of the space that it sounds like she lost pretty profoundly. Yeah. So uh, that is probably the best part of that advice. I also, as you know, um, genuinely loathe the advice uh, that when life gives you lemons, make lemonade. I think it's baloney. And... Um, so, yeah, that's what I would say. Fantastic. Uh, Sesson, thoughts? I don't know that I want to add that much more. I, I, just, I agree with what Sarah's saying. I just think there's um, such a thing as like that too much of that. When you're trying to sort of put a positive reframe on things that are just horrible and totally, you know, rocks us and shakes us to our core, I think, and devastates us, I think that it's so toxic. So... I think it's important to let people experience what they're to really speak to that, like to really language yeah. that in a way that's just without sugarcoating it or trying to minimize it. It's just important. Yeah, that certainly seemed to give her some uh, a feeling of a little bit of control, which I'm sure she had mm -hmm. uh, felt like it was all zapped from her. Um, mm -hmm. So I certainly agree with both. Good advice, especially um, if it speaks to you that comment then take it and run with it so here we go with the next one if you are the type of person who continues to be no contact with your dying family member even after i as the hospice nurse call you and say that that is their final dying wish to talk to you then i think that's totally fine i don't judge you and i don't think you owe people who abused you peace I don't mind being the bad guy and telling them no. I'll even update you when they pass if you ask me to and be your shoulder to cry on. And if all you feel is relief, that's totally normal too and you're not a bad person. Was going one direction, took a little bit of a turn. <laughs> What's good or bad advice from this hospital nurse? 
I actually think that's good advice. I was very nervous there for a minute. I think especially in her role, mm-hmm. what she's already offering is beyond what I think we should probably be expecting of nurses who work in hospice anyways. Uh, she's offering to be the shoulder to cry on for a family member she would have never met after the loss of a patient that she took care of uh, is a pretty enormous offer. And I think her recommendation that you don't owe um, somebody that maybe abused you in childhood uh, the peace that they're demanding from you Mm -hmm. at the end of their life, I would agree. And she's not in a position to help you change that through therapy. Uh, And that would be a different time at a different place and uh, in a different space. So um, I think that's excellent advice. We're going with excellent advice, Sesson. Yeah, I appreciate that someone within that profession or who serves in that way could put that out there. I think, you know, it's pretty, um, I think, powerful sometimes when you see a person in a position when they are constantly probably exposed to that kind of, um, and really just say, like, in a very non-judgmental way, like, I get it. Like, if you're out there and this has been your experience where you've felt the pressure, the sense of obligation to bring someone that piece or try, it's like, it's just nice to, I don't know, It's and there's something validating about it. It's really, I think, thoughtful of her to put that out there, because I'm sure it's a pretty controversial post, right? Within the profession, I imagine she'll have gotten some flack for that. Yeah. Uh, I also appreciate her saying, I'll even update you when they pass if you want, like, not period but mm-hmm. whatever you want whatever you're into so overall good advice and it started off a little spicy but um i love the turn there for her too some good content my love how do we diffuse an argument so that it doesn't escalate oh i look for the reasonable request of what you're actually trying to say you say something like i'm so fucking tired of doing everything around the house all the time instead of getting angry and upset i try to understand that you're probably trying to say you're overwhelmed and need help so i tell you i completely understand you're feeling overwhelmed and ask you if there's anything i can do to help instead of like taking it personally and getting angry with you okay what are we thinking good or bad advice what's can i just ask a clarify so this person was asking their partner, how do you de-escalate? And that person yes. was giving advice for how to do that. Yes. And okay. because how they specifically do it in their relationship where she might be mad and then he looks for the reasonable request and um, talks about that. You want to go first, Sesson? I don't know. Something about that felt very staged. I have to say, like, I don't know that I'm like... Welcome to TikTok. (laughs) Yeah, like, immediately I was like, okay, it sounds great, but, like, is this what you really do? Like, it didn't feel like... Maybe if this was a hidden camera situation, I don't know, but it didn't... Well, she was specifically asking him. So, I mean, I think that it was staged to that extent because she was specifically asking him, what do we do to de-escalate a situation? I don't know if it was his turtleneck, Jack's glasses. I don't know what it was, but it felt very contrived. Yeah, it felt very contrived. Contrived. A lot of self-report going on right there that I don't know if I believe at all. Part of me just like, I don't know if I could say if it's good or bad if I don't know if he meant it genuinely. Ideally, like, sure, sounds great. But like, I don't know. I'm going to let Sarah try to. I mean, I think what I hear Sesson responding to is it's probably excellent advice and also it sounds um she's questioning whether or not it's maybe been achieved um it's i think probably i would want to couch it in how often is that how she's asking for help 
How often is your partner um, maybe being critical, hostile, blaming, aggressively angry? Like, how often is that happening? Probably, I would imagine, not that often if you are able to, in the moment, reframe for yourself what is the emotional need behind this really aggressive startup here. (laughs) And instead, I'm going to reflect that back to you as if I have had a lot of couples therapy right. to learn or how to do that. Or maybe they are couples therapists. I'm not sure. Maybe they are. As a couples therapist, I promise you that's not a guarantee of anything. They also hashtag bare minimum, so. Oh, sure. They're achieving well, couples. Well, you're actually trying to say. You say something like, I'm so fucking tired of doing everything around the house all the time. Instead of getting angry and upset, I try to understand that you're probably trying to say you're overwhelmed and. I mean, so, do you, I mean, that's, if somebody's so, saying that in that way, are you really probably going, well, I probably think you mean that. I don't know. Yeah. Well, and I also think <laughs> that if I come to my partner and say those words so directly and he's like, well, you're probably just overwhelmed. I think that would escalate me because I don't think he's would really oh, be listening to the actual you don't issue. Get if how I was, angry I am. If I was that mad and he minimized it and said, Yo, you're probably just overwhelmed right now. I think that would make me more upset because no, you don't understand. Like I'm at my wits end. Yeah, I'm overwhelmed, but this is too much for me to handle. Mm-hmm. And Mm. It would feel like minimization to me. I understand mm. there it's class. I mean, it's literally classic conflict resolution and couples mm-hmm. therapy. Mm-hmm. But I think you also have to match the situation. Like mm-hmm. if I'm at my wits end and talking about how I can't go on like this, I can't mm-hmm. handle it anymore. It needs to be something other than classic conflict resolution of trying to find the understandable reason i feel like rather than fixing the problem at that point i probably just need a reflection of my thoughts and i just need someone to mm-hmm. listen to me i don't need them to mm-hmm. like try and fix the problem um mm-hmm. and if they wanted to fix the problem they should probably say do you want to problem solve right now or do you just want to vent like what do you want to do right now um, so if he'd stopped it it sounds like you're really overwhelmed and you're really upset if he had just stopped at that initial reflection that would have felt better yeah and also maybe like sounded like he cared i'm really sorry oh my gosh what's going on i'm really sorry right like if i'm coming to my partner saying like i'm overwhelmed with all the housework right now (laughs) i need him to be like holy crow because you know that's what my partner says all the time (laughs) like what can i do what can i do to pick up the slack here i know i've been really like do you know what i mean Mm -hmm. like i've come to you with uh, i don't know it just seems like that's not that wouldn't be matching my uh, right. needs. Intensity. Intensity, yeah. yeah. Well, and also to be fair, his example wasn't that she comes and says, I'm so fucking tired that you never contribute to doing yeah. the house. Right? They the complaint is, I'm so fucking tired of doing all of this housework. Like, I'm exhausted. Right. That's very different than coming to somebody and blaming, like, I'm so fucking sick of doing this all by myself. Where are you on any of these chores? I'm exhausted and I need to tap out and you're nothing. Right? Like, that's two totally different probably much easier for him to reframe and hear sort of the hidden emotion and frustration um because she's not necessarily complaining about him per se um and it could also be that i reserve the f-bomb for like uh, either humor or like really 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 mad like reserve it for I reserve it for those two situations like every day like talking to my partner about like oh 
things are kind of frustrating. Da, da, da. I usually don't drop the F bomb that much. You know what I mean? Unless it's like a funny story, then it's like left, right, and center. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Or I'm livid. So I don't know. Maybe I'm projecting too much onto this guy, but it didn't. I, maybe I'm also picking up on what you guys are saying about it not being genuine or Inauthentic. something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, so for classic therapy, we're saying 100% good advice. <laughs> At the same time, something just didn't vibe there. Um, okay. You ready for another one? Hey, friends. I'm getting ready to walk out the door to pick my husband up. Before I go, I want to say something. Sure. If you have a system in your house that was working and is no longer working, um, was going, things were going along fine. Well, things were going along fine. And something happened. That system stopped working. I want you to know what happened. I said, hey, what happened, girl? I'm about to say. So, the system was either not accessible and attractive, which systems need to be in order for them to work, both accessible and attractive. Or it was, and the people who engaged with that system, they changed, they grew, they evolved, something happened with them or something acute is going on in their lives and they can no longer live up to the system. That's the thing about it. We create systems until we need to create a new system because that old system failed. That's what systems do, they fail. But people don't fail systems, okay? It's not the right system for the people who have to engage with it. It's just that simple. We don't need to internalize that. We just need to rework the system. And maybe um, just think about it a little bit more to make it more accessible and attractive. Take care. What are we thinking about how we engage with systems, good or bad advice? I think What's, yeah. there is research to suggest that this happens for couples all the time. I mean, it sounded sort of more particularly advice for maybe couples, especially maybe those who are cohabiting and sharing a yeah. physical space together. Co-parenting. Uh, I think, yeah, right. Because the, uh, well, when couples expand their family to include children this is i think a lot of times when systems that were working before and we continue to apply those systems mm-hmm. after having a child they no longer work and you can uh, very easily have very uneven unequal outputs uh, where partners can start to feel very resentful and so i think there's lots of research to suggest that different life course transitions that we go through probably often necessitate changes in our systems. But if what she's referring to is specifically like housework or maybe even bill paying or sort of that practical day-to-day living stuff, that I think often needs revisiting and probably intentionally so. So I would say good advice. Good advice. Sesson? Mm-hmm. I liked her energy. Um, yeah, me too. I think... I agree. And I also think there was a piece of what she was saying around if something is no longer working, like the system needs to change and maybe not the individual, like perhaps I misinterpreted that. But that piece I would challenge a little bit because I think, especially when you contextualize it, like if she's talking about within a couple dynamic, I think, you know, you can't separate the individual from the system in the way that change happens, right? So I think... It's like when we're talking about, for example, what you said, uh, Sarah, about, you know, transitioning into parenthood, right? And it's like, okay, well, on some level, as an individual within the relationship, I have to adapt, right? So it's, you can't necessarily, I think that that distinguishing between the system and the individual is a lot more tricky than the way she was describing it. I wonder if she means systems more as like processes or division of mm-hmm. labor rather mm-hmm. than like family systems the way that like maybe marriage and family therapies tend to think of systems. Yeah. I mean, I think there is a huge need for people to understand when they get together, of course, 
that what is working for them initially will eventually require, you know, shifting, adapting. And without that, it, whatever they created will not survive, right? It can't grow. Right. And I think that is something we all really struggle with. And I think one of the things people often talk about is like, well, things have changed so much. This person has changed so much. And I, the question is like, well, where are you within that change as well? Like, I, I think it's so important and so under explored and examined within relationships, like that idea of how do we adapt to the changing environments that we are living within as a couple. Um, but I think it is so powerful when you can, as a human being, recognize the value and importance of um, adaptation. And I think we get so stuck on trying to stay who we are. Like I hear songs about it. I hear, you know, reading. It's like, don't change who you are for other people or for other things. Like, no, no, these really like sweeping ideas of like, you know, you are who you are, your core is not, you know, I get the reasons behind some of that, but I don't think we promote the idea of adaptation enough. I just think it's a real challenge for people in relationships and the importance of really promoting that in relationship education and in couple therapy and just as two people trying to make sure we're in a partnership where we recognize that that's an important quality that like, do you know how to adapt? I think that should be one of the checkboxes when you... (laughs) When you sign the marriage license, do you know how to adapt? Way before that, when you're going on that first day, when you're asking your laundry list of like, these are the things I are important to me. Are you able to adapt? If that person says no, that is not probably a good sign. Mm, what I wouldn't have <laughs> give to be on a first date with you and listen to that checklist. Um, so checklist. generally we're saying good advice. Well, as always, thanks for listening to Attached. Remember, call us, email us, and get at us on all the social medias about any relationship advice you've received that you're wondering whether to follow or pass on. We cannot wait to talk about it.